Good morning. This week, we finish the book of Bimidbar with the parashios of Matos and Mas'e. Today, however, we will be concentrating primarily on the beginning of Parshas Matos, plus a related discussion on last week's Parsha, Parshas Pinchas. Today, the title for the class is Our Thoughts Define Us. This month, the month of Tammuz, is dedicated by Daniel and Brittany Lombardi and family in memory of their grandmother, Doris Lombardi, her strength, purpose, and joyful approach to life, along with her strong emphasis on Judaism, remain a huge inspiration to the entire family. This week's class is dedicated in the merit of Rafu Shlema for David ben Aliza, Eitan Shemuel ben Hana Sima, David ben Leia, Dover Tzvi Hirsch ben Dina, Yosef Shimon ben Serena, Ayolat Pastal Yechaya, and Chana Miriam bas Rechel Raizo. One of the major caveats of Judaism is that it is never too late or too early to do teshuva, to repent. We know that this time cycle on our calendar that we call the three weeks is one where we experienced unspeakable national suffering, just to name a few are the destruction of both Batei Hamikdash, the holy temples, the onset of the Spanish Inquisition, and the Holocaust. All of this occurred during this period. As we continue our way through the three weeks, a question that we should be asking ourselves is what are some new ways to work on ourselves? After all, if we can improve ourselves and meaningfully repent, this should help us avert some of the suffering or punishment that our actions may have warranted. And as we know, this three week period is the time of consequence. Many of us know expressions such as mind over matter, or it takes willpower, or the power of positive thinking. We may or may not have spent time and effort on cultivating the strength of our willpower or our positive mindsets. I suggest that an excellent area of self-improvement that could have tremendously impactful results on our lives, on the people around us, on the entire nation and world, is to think about what we think about. And specifically to grow our ability to correctly influence ourselves by strengthening our thinking practices. Now, obviously, meditation is one of those areas that people go to. I'm not going to be discussing meditation today. I'm not against that. That's another whole area that I will not be discussing. In today's discussion, we will focus on all of these types of thoughts that we have and the huge impact that our thoughts that we entertain or consider have on ourselves that are way beyond what we likely realize. We will demonstrate this through two examples. One is from Parshas Pinchas, and one is from Parshas Matos. So here is example number one. We'll briefly mention uh, the teachings, the Pasuk, and uh, the commentary of the rabbis. And it comes from Parshas Pinchas when the Torah has the list of Shvatim that are counted. Over there, in the very first tribe of Reuven, the Torah actually discusses Dasan Aviram, Korach, and the children of Korach, and the children of Korach are mentioned for the first time. So when the Torah counts the number of men above the age 20 for the tribe of Reuven, 
The Torah mentions as an aside that Dasan and Aviram died because of their participation in the rebellion of Karach. And then the Torah teaches us a new fact that had not been disclosed in Parshas Korach itself, right? Again, we're discussing Parshas Pinchas, which comes after Korach. So here's what the sentence says, but the sons of Korach did not die. That's what the sentence says. So Rashi to this sentence says that Korach's children were originally part of the plot. They were Be'etzah Tehila. They were, they were originally in the plot, but at the moment when there was the rebellion, they had thoughts of repentance in their hearts. The language of Rashi is b'sha'as ha-machlokas. At the time of the machlokas, they actually had hirhure teshuva, thoughts of repentance in their hearts, says Rashi, beliba. Therefore, there was a high spot that was fenced around for them in Gehenim, and they stayed there. That's based on the Talmud in Sanhedrin 110b. And the general understanding is after that point, the children of Korach somehow got out of Gehenim and lived to not only see another day, but actually compose several Psalms that we say as part of Tehillim, right? So we know that they not only survived, but they thrived and have made a major contribution to us through Tehillim and I'm sure other ways. So here are two questions. So we understand that they survived and we understand that they had thoughts of repentance. But question number one is why indeed does the Torah not teach us of the survival of the children of Korach during the recounting of the story of the rebellion, which is in part of Korach? Why is this a detail that somehow doesn't need mentioning there, but does need mentioning in Parshas Korach, I'm sorry, Parshas Pinchas, when the Torah is counting the Jewish people. Seemingly it belongs when the story happened, especially because the impression that one would have in Parshas Korach is that just like Dustin and Aviram and all of their children died, so to Korach and all of his children, plus everyone's possessions were swallowed into the ground. So why does the Torah omit this very interesting and important fact of the survival of the sons of Korach in Parshas Korach and wait to mention it in Parshas Pinchas where the Torah says simply, and the children of Korach did not die. Question number two, if in fact the children of Korach repented, why did they fall down towards Gehenna? Right? If they did not repent, then why do they survive? So seemingly it's one of two things. They were either part of the rebellion or they were not part of the rebellion. What's this notion of something in the middle, kind of like sitting on the fence, where they are judged as part of the rebellion because they actually get swallowed into the ground, even though they had a special fenced off area at a high point in Gehenna. But on the other hand, they actually survived. So if they actually survived and they, as we mentioned, were a major contribution to the Jewish people. By the way, I shouldn't neglect to mention that ultimately the prophet Shmuel comes from them Right, so obviously this is really, really important. Why, in fact, do they go down to Gehenim at all? So before we enter our parsha, I would first like to expand on understanding this teaching of the children of Korach in terms of our theme, which is how to think about what we think about. Now, there is a kind of thinking that most people have that we can call a passing or a fleeting thought. This type of thinking does not define a person. 
I don't know where this number really comes from, but I saw in doing a little bit of research on this topic today that the average person has 60,000 thoughts per day. In the manner of speaking, that seems very small, unless we're talking about a very specific kind of um, you know, thought, as opposed to just the myriad calculations that we have to make about everything in, in our lives, probably means some kind of an idea that's new for us. But anyways, it's a large number of thoughts that our minds process every day. So I'm going to suggest that the kind of thinking which is a passing or a fleeting thought does not really define us. But there's another type of thinking that is more intense. And this is a grappling with or a strongly considering idea along with a thought of taking action based on this idea. This type of thinking does partially define oneself because it has a major impact on feelings as well as possible behaviors of the future. So we're gonna say that the Hebrew word for this kind of thinking is a hirhor. A hirhor means a, uh, a grappling type of thought and that this is a very, very significant kind, kind of thinking. It's not just something that runs through a person's brain and disappears. This stays with the person and they cogitate on it and they grapple with it. And whether or not they decide to go with it in action is another element. But first, we're just going to talk about the fact that this is a grappling uh, kind of a thinking that deeply affects a person. That's the language that the rabbis use here when it comes to the thinking of the children of Korah. The children of Korah had this grappling thinking during the Machlokas. That means when the rebellion was going on, even though they had initially decided to be on their father's side, while the rebellion was happening, Bishas and Machlokas, they had a grappling thought of changing their position, of so to speak, repenting. And that type of a thinking is very, very important and has a major impact on a person. And that's what we can see from this te teaching. Because at the end of the day, the rabbis are very careful to avoid saying that the children of Korach actually repented, right? What the rabbis say is that they had a thought initially to be part of the rebellion, or I shouldn't say they had a thought, they were initially part of the rebellion, they were be'etzah tzachila, and then during the rebellion, during the machlokas, they had this hirhurin, these thoughts, these grappling cogitations of changing their mind and repenting. And this is very important because essentially what this is telling us is that the mentaling grappling, the mental grappling that the children of Korach experienced allowed them to be considered separate from the general rebellion and to avoid complete destruction. Nonetheless, because they took no decision and action on their grappling, it was as though they had fully rebelled. And because of that, on the exterior, the Torah treats them as though they rebelled and as though initially they died. That would be the impression of the sentences in Parshas Korach. And the reason that that's so kind of like awakening is because it tell us, tells us 
that the fact that they had thoughts of teshuva did not actually change how they seemed to anyone else externally. And because of that, they were treated initially and for all intents and purposes as though they were part of the Korach rebellion and did, yes, in fact, get swallowed into the ground. Nonetheless, the internal mental grappling ultimately saved them because their internal selves were not decidedly rebellious. So this tells us how strong it is, the internal questioning and the internal um, thinking that we have on any issue can be. In the case of the children of Korach, it literally saved them from utter destruction. Now, another good example of this is back in Parshas Va'era, the Torah tells us that Moshe Rabbeinu was distraught at the fact that the Jewish people were suffering greatly because of the request that Moshe had made to let my people go. And Rashi, the rabbis tell us that Moshe Rabbeinu was somewhat chastised by Hashem for being maharher achar nidosav, similar language. Moshe was considering or grappling after the attributes of Hashem and challenging and questioning how all this could really happen, given the fact that Hashem had told them to redeem the Jewish people, etc. So without going into that whole story too much, what we can see from there is that obviously to have a question in a person's mind to wonder, hey, what is the hashkacha of Hashem? I wonder what's going on here. I don't think I understand it, is very different than deeply grappling with its veracity or its righteousness. And it seems that that's what Moshe Rabbeinu is being chastised for, is for the deep mental grappling that he had over how Hashem was handling the redemption of Hashem's people. So that's another example where we see that deeply questioning something internally can be a major impact on a person and how Moshe Rabbeinu himself is treated, more on that a different time. We have other examples of this, such as negative thinking, either idolatry or lustful thoughts. Those are also areas where the rabbis use a similar terminology because these are areas where a person is grappling perhaps on the, with themselves about what they will do, but internally they're really questioning who they wanna be, what type of thoughts they really wanna engage in and, and experience even in their minds. And that's another area where we see that internal thinking can be very, very defining and cause great impact. Now, later we'll talk about some of the hopefully more positive examples that we can think about so that we can encourage ourselves to do the positive uh, opposite of what we've been discussing until this point, until this point by grappling with good actions and positive thinking. Okay, so that's example number one. We're calling that the children of Korach and the fact that they were saved because they were maharher teshuva belibam, because they grappled with the notion of repenting in their hearts. Example number two from this week's parsha. The Torah tells us that when a woman makes a vow, depending on her state, either as a girl in her father's home or as a woman married to her husband, that a woman's vow can be nullified by either her father or her husband. At the same time, if the father or the husband do not nullify the vow, then the woman's vow stands. So this is Parshas, uh, Parshas Matos, 
uh, chapter 30, sentence 6. But if her father restrains her on the day he finds out, that means the father found out that his daughter made a vow, none of her vows or self-imposed obligations shall stand because the father restrained her. In other words, he nullified the vow and Hashem will forgive her since her father restrained her. Again, since the father nullified the vow, she's not liable to punishment for her vow. Now over here we have Rashi and the Talmud discussing a very interesting scenario that they explain is the actual meaning of the sentence. What is the Torah talking about over here that Hashem will forgive her? If in fact the vow is nullified, why does she need forgiveness? Right? The sentence seems to be saying that if the father and later in the Torah the husband nullifies her vow, so then the wife's or daughter's vow is considered null and void. So why does the Torah say the phrase, Hashem and Hashem will forgive her if in fact there is no vow? So over here, the Rashi tells us, and it's really the Gemara and Kedushin. So I'm just gonna really read to you the Gemara from Kedushin uh, 81b, which says that if her husband does, yes, annul them on the day he finds out, then nothing that has crossed her lips shall stand, her husband has an altar. Now it's taught in Abraisa to explain this verse that we're talking about a case of a woman who vowed to be a Nizira. A Nizira is a woman who would not drink wine, minimum of 30 days, cut hair, come in contact with the dead, right? That would make her a Nizira. She made a formal vow to that effect. So why does the woman require forgiveness if her husband nullified her vow of being a Nizira. It's referring to a woman who vowed to be a Nazarite and her husband heard and nullified her vow. But she did not know that her husband had nullified her vow and she nevertheless drank wine and contracted impurity from a corpse violating her presumed vow. So we're talking about where the woman made the vow, the husband nullified it, but she did not know that the husband nullified it and went ahead thinking that in fact she was a Nizira, but nonetheless drank wine that she should not have drunk based on her vow or came in contact with a de dead person which she should not have done based on her vow. And therefore the Torah says that Hashem will forgive her because she needs forgiveness. So this passage in the Talmud uses this case by the laws of vows to teach us that a person requires forgiveness when they thought to commit a sin, even though they did not actually transgress. Now, a good example today would be somebody serves you a delicious looking burger with dairy cheese. You think it's a cheeseburger. Turns out it's one of those impossible or beyond burgers. And you intend to violate the prohibition of eating milk and meat that was cooked together and you eat it. And it turns out you violated nothing because really it was a beyond burger. Right? That would be another example for today. Well, the law would be that that person needs forgiveness. It's kind of astonishing, right? I'm sure she did something wrong. No, she did not do anything wrong because the husband had nullified the vow in the case of the, the Nizira. Exactly. I didn't know it was not a cheeseburger. I ate it thinking it was a cheeseburger. Uh, right? It's the same, same thing, even though there's no technical violation. Now, the Gemara, we're going to ask two questions in a second, but first, uh, the Gemara said the, that when Rabbi Akiva would come to this sentence in our parsha, he would cry. Because he said, and if, if 
if with regard to one who intended to eat pork, I give an example of a cheeseburger, and kosher lamb came up in his hand, like this woman who intended to violate her vow, but in fact did not, the Torah nevertheless says she requires atonement and forgiveness, all the more so one who intended to eat pork and pork came up in his hand, he requires atonement and forgiveness. That's what Rabbi Akiva says. That's what the Gemara brings. And this is like just an astonishing piece of the Gemara. First of all, why in fact, this is question number one, why in fact does this woman require forgiveness? She didn't do anything wrong. What do you want from her? Okay, she thought to do something wrong, but she did not violate a law. So what's the forgiveness for? That's question number one, right? Question number two is seemingly, it should be obvious that if a person intends to sin, right, he intends to rebel against Hashem, and then he in fact rebels against Hashem, that he needs forgiveness. We don't need a pasuk to tell us, oh, that if a person did not intend, I should say, a person intended to do something wrong, did not do something wrong, that they need forgiveness, a person who does something wrong needs forgiveness. Obviously, that's what the whole Torah is about. If a person does something wrong, they need forgiveness. So what is Rabbi Akiva adding to what seems to be uh, a very obvious halachic and philosophic point in Judaism. So I believe that again, here the Torah is teaching us another profound concept regarding a person's thoughts. When a person has accepted his thoughts to the point of making a decision that they've decided how they will behave, it is as though he has carried out the act in the sense that he has defined himself as a person who does or did that act. Now, this is different from, do I get punished or rewarded for doing the act? I don't wanna get into that because it's gonna make everything a little bit too complicated. I just wanna say, I'm not talking about that the person gets punished for the decision as though like, you know, he ate the pig or ate the cheeseburger or as though she was in Azira, but it is as far as their self-definition is concerned, that they have become that type of a person. When a person has accepted his acts to that point, so he has self-defined himself. So therefore, by all sinning, the decision requires forgiveness, not just the action of the sin. I believe that's what Rabbi Akiva is saying. It's not merely the person who eats the pork that now needs forgiveness. Of course, we all know that. For deciding to eat the pork, a person also needs forgiveness. And this is a very, very subtle, but incredibly profound point that we all need to understand about ourselves. We have the power to define ourselves based on what we deeply think and decide without having taken action. It is true that when we take action, especially repeated action, we concretize that self-definition. We become entrenched or habituated in a way of being more in action than just by thinking, but we cannot overlook what actually happens to us when we think deeply and decide. We become a different person and that needs forgiveness also because we have a responsibility and a commitment to Hashem as part of being a servant of Hashem to define ourselves correctly. It's not just about our behavior, it's about who we define ourselves to be. And that in fact does require forgiveness. So the impact 
of bringing thinking to a decision is gargantuan because we define ourselves based on that decision. And as I mentioned, obviously, the more we carry out the decision into action, the more entrenched we become, and then it's harder to change. But at the end of the day, it's the decision itself that requires forgiveness that Rabbi Akiva is teaching us here. And that's why the woman needs forgiveness. She made a decision to be a Nizira. She articulated that decision, right? She made a vow. And then she decided in action to go against her vow, even though technically her vow was nullified by her husband or father's action to cancel the vow, nonetheless, she needs forgiveness. So the novel point is that even the decision defines us, and if it's a negative one, it requires forgiveness. So how can we help ourselves to make better decisions and to not grapple with making negative ones? How do we get out of that bad pattern of behavior? Like for example, the children of Korah, they thought to repent, but they did not actually do repentance. So even though it saved them because it was a deep grappling kind of thinking, at the end of the day, it would be better not to go down to Gehenna at all, right? <clears throat> so I believe that we can learn from the Torah. It's just incredible always how the Torah chooses its areas of teaching the lesson and how much we continue to learn from the lesson, from the place where the Torah teaches us something. Obviously, from the fact that the Torah tells us this not new idea that if a person intends to eat a cheeseburger, but in, instead it ended up being a vegan you know, burger that wasn't uh, milk and meat and any other example that we mentioned, and that, that nonetheless it requires forgiveness, the Torah chooses to teach that to us in the laws of vows, there must be some reason. Because that's a general rule. It doesn't only, it's not only true by a vow where a person, like this case of the woman thought to be in Azira, was technically not and violated it. It would be in the case of eating pork, like we've been mentioning, right? Like Rabbi Akiva in the, in the Gemara tells us. So why does it teach us this by the laws of vows? The answer, I think, is because the Torah is telling us that the most clearly defined thought before it's an action is articulated by words. It means to say that the strongest thought that we can have before we take action is not only what's in our minds, it's not only the fact that we take a decision, but it's that we articulate that that is our decision. So it's by the laws of a vow where a woman thinks to be a Nazira, says with her mouth that she in fact is committing to be a Nazira with a strong uh, verbal commitment called a vow, that that is the fully most concretized thinking that a person can have without actually taking action. Without actually taking action, that's the highest level of articulated thinking. And so therefore, what the Torah is teaching us with this is that if we want to help ourselves to define ourselves positively through our positive thinking, we need to articulate it and commit to it. Now, don't mishear me, don't make vows. In conclusion, most of the time we hold that it's better not to make vows. And be careful when you undertake a verbal commitment to do a mitzvah because that can be considered like a vow. So I'm gonna give you another solution called write down what you plan to do. Make a schedule. 
make a schedule of the positive things that you're considering doing, decide to do them and put them into your calendar. It's one of the most impactful things that any of us could do to help everything in our lives. Because very often we walk around with thoughts like, you know, I haven't seen that person in a long time. I really should call them. And then we forget about it again, right? Or, you know, I wonder, you know, that person wasn't well and I haven't called them, right? And then we forget about it again. Or when it comes to learning, we say, you know what? I really should learn something more, especially on this subject that I I keep, uh, you know, having questions about. I really should just, you know, sit down and read a book on it, right? And then we forget about it again. So what's really critically important that we learn this from the laws of vows is that if we want our positive thinking to actually become our self-definition, we need to decide to do, and we at least need to articulate it. And I'm suggesting even further, write it down, put it into a schedule. Now, another area that we really need to look at not only on the positive side, is the negative side. You know, very often we might have thoughts that are negative. I mentioned several categories again. I'm not going to go into, you know, those specifically. But sometimes, let's say, for example, we have thoughts of not liking someone and we really want to tell them off or do something that would hurt them in some fashion, right? And we think about that. How can we help ourselves to not grapple with those thoughts and to not get a self-definition of a person who's strongly considering hurting someone, right? How can we do better with that? And I think one simple thing that we need to do is to ask ourselves on a regular basis is, are we proud of our grappling thoughts? Are we proud of the things that we consider in our minds very often throughout the course of the day? An even better way to look at them would be to articulate them even just to ourselves. So what I'm really considering doing is A, B, C, D, E, F, and G. Is that really a good idea? Is that really what I should be thinking about? Because there's a kind of a mental relief that comes when a person allows themselves even a fantasy of imagining carrying, doing something out that they really shouldn't do, right? But the question is, should we really be deeply entertaining those thoughts? Because if we should not, We have to recognize that they do take root and become part of our self-definition. And so therefore, I think that if we really want to work on a major area that could benefit us tremendously in these three weeks is obviously we need to repent on all the things that we have done wrong and do wrong and we need to change the things that we do wrong, that's obvious. But if we really wanna go an extra step and hopefully gain special merit in the eyes of Hashem that we should not experience, God forbid, negative things at this time of the year, I think we should go the extra step of really thinking about our thinking and working on these particular areas. And I'm going to just suggest now a very practical thing to do. I'm going to then um, kind of recap, you know, the basic idea so that it's firm, and then we'll take questions and comments. One of the things that uh, the Talmud teaches us in Tractate Makos, uh, we're just finishing that here in the yeshiva today, as the Zman is uh, over today, is that throughout history, the Jewish people have recognized that observing the entire Torah 
with a mindset that I'm going to focus on everything in the Torah all the time is extremely difficult. And because of that, the Gemara talks about how the 613 commandments in the Torah were kind of synthesized and encapsulated into smaller, smaller, um, more bite-sized uh, focus actions, right? So one uh, example that the, the, is the a psalm in Sefer Tehillim where King David outlines, you know, 11 things, that he didn't speak hard. like there are 11 more like concentrated actions to focus on. And hopefully with that, he improve all areas of Torah observance. The final one that the Gemara concludes with is number one is to walk with humility with Hashem. Walk with modesty, I said humility, modesty, you know, akin to humility with Hashem, your God. If we could just do that, that would be a way of working on everything. Okay, that's an example that the Gemara gives. So I'm suggesting to all of us that a very good way for all of us to uh, work on everything is to make a summer schedule. This is what I recommend for the uh, Yeshiva Bachrim. Any of us that are now out of our normal routine are subject to thinking that we don't need to have a routine. But the truth is, it's just the opposite. We always need to have a routine because we always need to commit to a structure because that's the only way to have anchors that really give ourselves the necessary uh, framework for which to be successful. So whether it's a time for waking up and a time for going to sleep, which really starts with the time you go to sleep or the time that you daven or the time that you learn or the time that you do chesed, or the time that you do other particular productive actions, it's very important to put that into a schedule. But part of what we're seeing here is that unless we do take action to articulate our positive thinking so that it becomes who we are, we're unlikely to really define ourselves positively because there's so much going on that we could be thinking about that's actually negative. So therefore, the best thing that we can pos possibly do is to really focus on the positive things that we know we think about doing and really clearly write them down, put them into a schedule and make a whole, so to speak, summer of productivity. And that's, uh, that's what I think would be one very simple way to work on everything that the Torah wants us to do. Focus on the positive, put it down so that it's articulated, and then you know, hopefully live by it because now it's clearly focused and now we can implement it to action. Ultimately, of course, action is the ultimate way to define ourselves positively. So the upshot of what we're learning today is that our thoughts do define us. We have one area of thinking, which is what we deeply consider and ponder and cogitate and grapple with. That also defines us albeit to a lesser extent than that which is clearly articulated and decided. That's the second way of really defining ourselves based on our thoughts, the things that we've thought about and then decided to do. Both of them have very, very strong impact on who we are. And we actually need forgiveness if we decide to do the wrong thing, or even if we deeply grapple with doing the wrong thing, that also can have a very negative impact but we definitely need forgiveness if we decide to do the wrong thing, as in the case of the woman who made the vow and her father or husband nullified it. And then lastly, we're saying some practical tips for how to work on thinking better is we need to clearly articulate 
what we're grappling with and ask ourselves, you know, if we just speak out the things that we're thinking about, are we proud that this is our thinking and that the, these are the, you know, actions that we're considering or pondering, or are we not proud? And then the second thing is to actually articulate the positive ones, articulate them to yourselves, articulate them to your friends, uh, be careful not to make a commitment because then it can become a vow, but you can plan to do them, you can write them down, and that itself should have a tremendous impact on the way that we carry out these positive thoughts. Uh, so I just want to finish with just one last point, and then we'll get to questions and comments, is that, you know, this, these two parashios, parashios Matos and Masse is the conclusion of Sefer B'midbar. And I think it's not a coincidence that we're concluding on this topic in the book of B'midbar, because at the end of the day, the book of B'midbar is about how the Jewish people carry forward from Harsina, right? We have all this learning that we did at Mount Sinai. We're getting ready now to enter the land of Israel. We, we're becoming a fully self-responsible nation required to live by all of that which the Torah dictates. If we really want to be able to do that, we have to be very careful in paying attention to what we're thinking, what we're grappling with, what we're deciding to do, not only what we actually do. Questions or comments? Thanks, Akira. See you next you, week. Thank you. Rabbi? Um, yeah. Hi. Um, thank you. I, I just, um, somebody once said to me that um, if everything's your priority, then nothing's your priority. Oh. Good. And um, I would love some practical tips on how, you know, if the list gets really long on uh, actualizing some of our thoughts, how one might productively create some priorities so that uh, something positive can happen. Yeah, that's great. So um, I want to um, respond to what you're saying. Then I want to respond to something I have an uh, posted. I don't know if you posted it to me or you sent it to everyone. Everyone. Uh, Everyone. Good. Yes, I want to respond to that. So really what should happen is that when a person begins their list and the list is so long, the next obvious question is, can I do it all? Obvious answer will be no. So then it's going to become a question of priority. Right. Right. So if you want a practical tip on how to prioritize things in life, start with your key relationships. There are generally about seven or eight this is actually really from the seven habits. I'm not going to explain the whole thing now. Uh, seven habits of highly effective people has a great exercise for this. And basically you begin with your key relationships and you ask yourselves what you want to do important related to those eight or seven or eight relationships. A person is a child, they're a parent, they're a friend. Uh, they might have a specific relative with which they have a special relationship. Uh, they might be a boss or an employee right? They might have a community standing position, right? There are about seven or eight typical relationships that every person has at a minimum. And then you want to begin with those, right? Because we know that uh, the relationship that we develop with our children, our parents, our friends, our community are some of the most important things in our lives. So we can start with those. Now, of course, if you want to put servant of Hashem, some people like to put that, you're welcome to do that. But then again, it might seem to get very long that list, uh, but what you can do over there is at least begin with what you at least know or strongly suspect is the wrong thing that you've been doing, work on how to change those things. So basically, if you begin with those seven or eight and you ask yourself, what is one thing per week that I can do, and you put that into your week, 
uh, it can have tremendous results. Thank you. Um, one last question. Um, years and years and years ago, is, it, is there a part of our davening in the morning davening that uh, suggests that we actualize our thoughts or am I imagining that? Is there something written that actually, you know, as we're davening, that we're we're asking Hashem to help us actualize our thoughts, or is well, that? My there, there, there are probably a few. One of them is um, uh, at the end of Shmona Esrei, we say Yehulah Ratzon Imrei Fi Vehegyom Libi. Exactly. Yeah, we, That's what I was looking for. Yeah, right, right at the end of Shmona Esrei. Thank yeah. you. Yeah, that they should be effective, even if they're just in our hearts or thoughts. Um, yeah, so just to go to Rabbi Nakiman's point, I agree with you, Rabbi Nakiman, that an excellent way for a person to actually self-examine is to write down what they're considering doing. I think you're saying that maybe you felt like you actually did the Lashon Hara by writing it down. I doubt that, but I think you're, you're probably saying that you realize it's not really what you want to do. I don't, I don't really know. All I remember, for some reason, I said I was you know, very upset or something, so I would... You know, and I had the desire to, you know, let let this guy have it, not him, or just tell tell something else. And I, you know, I wrote it down, and all of a sudden the desire just just left. Yes, let's analyze that for a second, okay? So one possibility is what I'm suggesting is that we realize that that's not really the person that I want to be. I'm not saying that was your case. I'm just saying no. that that's one one possibility. But another one, which I think also is a point that I didn't raise in this year, and I think that you're making now, and is a very very good one is that sometimes what we need to know <clears throat> is that we have a sense of self that deserves to be treated differently. Yeah. We need that for ourselves, not for the other person. So sometimes by writing down what we would do, it kind of ratifies our own self-esteem. And that's enough because we don't actually, we just need to know about ourselves that we're worthy. We don't, it doesn't really need to be that they think so. We just need to be worthy. Well, well, yes, just a little touch on that. In, in other words, what they had done by doing something bad to you had lowered your self-esteem. And when you write it out, you're showing that what they're doing was wrong and there was no you know, uh, deficiency in you. Correct. And so ultimately, yeah, that's their problem, not your problem. And, and, uh, and then you're able to be comfortable with yourself. Very often, a person feels like if they don't react, that they're, they can't stand up for themselves. And the truth is, you just need to stand up for yourself for yourself, not, yeah. not to someone else. Yeah, I think, that, I think that's a, another very excellent uh, point on why examining our thoughts are so important. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't talk about that. Excellent, anybody else? Okay, so I wish everyone uh, a great uh, rest of your week. We have oh. two weeks, believe it or not. It's only just, just over two weeks to fish about. So God willing, everybody should experience a good, healthy, safe summer. Let's keep improving uh, for our benefit, for the benefit of Paul Israel and the world. Have a great day, everyone. Amen. Thank you, Rabbi.